Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, Colin, it is awesome to be back with you for another Silver Club podcast. What's going on? Very good. More spring weather. You wouldn't, Steve, you would have no idea how beautiful January, February, and now March have been in New England. Have you had much much snow up there at all? We did in uh, early January, and since then it's been golf weather day after day. Unbelievable, right? Yeah, the uh, the whole whole country really is... uh, really experience a mild winter i guess maybe <laughs> weather wise but we're maybe we're getting paid back in uh illnesses wise around the the country that uh man this this coronavirus thing is kind of taken over the planet uh, hopefully it's not curbing any of our too many of our listeners travels fortunately as sports go golf is pretty good right for sort of non sort of spread of diseases and who knew not having to take the flag stick out anymore that's a nice little twist to be able to reach it and just gently grab your golf ball with two fingers that's a yeah that's a that's a great point not having to touch the flag stick itself uh you know that's uh never thought about that one but that one that might uh yeah see usj is helping helping not spread the coronavirus because of that so that's good yeah maybe people (laughs) should just rake uh traps with their feet very quickly get rid of the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh yeah, it's it's a dangerous thing, but you know, you being at Yale University up there in Connecticut, you'll have a uh you know, one of the students at your school may, you know, fix the the whole virus, you know, with all their intelligence and research and all that stuff up there. And um uh yeah, did you so so uh do you have a chance we we had Bob Ford on our last podcast. And if any of our listeners out there haven't heard the Bob Ford podcast, we actually set records for the first week of downloads for that podcast. So uh, happy to say it was a super popular one. We talked about everything from the 2021 Walker Cup to the Seminole member pro that that happened, which is like the the greatest pro-am, pro-member, whatever you'd like to call it on the planet. I mean, he did such a great job. He's such a dignified, consummate professional. I mean, his for forever, his his identification with those two historic clubs is has sort of been what you know has linked his identity. And he those I used you know in some ways I used to think how lucky he was to get to be the pro at Oakmont and Seminole. And 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 getting to know him and listening to your interview, I realized how lucky Oakmont and Seminole were to have him. Just a. a- as cl- most of a class act as you could ever find could do everything under the sun as far as being a quality PGA professional from running the merchandise while playing in the US Open i mean that that story among uh, uh, alongside everything else really stuck out to me the 1983 US Open and how he played he he played in the event obviously made the cut <laughs> He likes to say that Larry Nelson won the event uh, and won $72,000, I think, for winning the U.S. Open that year. But Bob Ford really won the money title that week <laughs> because of the uh, he owned all the merchandise concession for it. So that was uh, <laughs> that's some story that's, right there. That's pretty good. I, I guess we can a lot of the pros out there can everybody can blame Bob Ford really for uh, having the USGA really take over all of the concessions during the U.S. Open because 
uh, he, he definitely did pretty good there during the U S <laughs> open, but uh, another guy, who, another guy who did pretty good. And, and this, this story has come out recently, Brandon Matthews, you, you talked about off air. We talked about him being from the Northeast, it, you know, really the story behind Brandon Matthews. He was, he was the one who was playing in a Latin American tour event, lost in a playoff because a, a, a gentleman who had Down syndrome made a, made a sound during his backstroke, causing him to miss the putt. He found out later that the, the gentleman had some had some personal issues and and really embraced him and you know gave him golf balls and gloves and gave him a hug and really wanted him to be a, a positive experience as, instead of a negative experience for maybe costing him the title because of that he got his first start on the PGA Tour last week at Bay Hill he's a, a Corn Ferry Tour member right now but uh, talk to us a little about what you know about Brandon Matthews. So this is why we all love local local sports stories, local stories in general, and we love to track the players in any sport who come from our region. And and uh, so Brandon is the first Northeast College golfer that I've coached against uh, to get a to have a PGA Tour start. Um, and he was someone who he was a standout player for Temple. He had one of the greatest in single individual years of any college golfer in the Northeast in my 12 years. Uh, he was always the longest hitter. He was, uh, and he did so with, I mean, he's obviously tall and, and, and strong, but he, he did it without ever over swinging, which I was always very impressed by. And he was also such a standout, terrific kid. Uh, all the coaches liked him. He was such a gentleman. I remember him personally thanking me for a tournament we had hosted at Century. And he's a kid you can't help but like, you have to, you love. And, and, and so it's, it's, we all have these people that we know from our region that we love to just track their progress and you're just pulling for them all the way up. And so it was no surprise to hear the story about how he, the graciousness in which he handled it. Uh, and then to me, that was the perfect use of a, of a, of a sponsor's exemption. Um, yes, he missed the cut. And I'm sure there was maybe some higher ranked player in the world that could have benefited from it, but the goodwill and the, in the, and it, and first of all, the term is allowed to do whatever they want. And it just made me – I was touched by the idea that that Arnold Palmer's tournament gave him the exemption because it was exactly the type of thing that Arnold Palmer would have done himself. And so uh, I was I, – I just was thrilled to watch him get the coverage. He's still the longest hitter on tour. He's the kid – he's the only person <laughs> I've ever seen reach the 18th hole at Yale in two. I watched him play the final hole of the 2015 NCAA Regionals at Yale in the third round and he needed to, or he actually, it was his, it was his uh, ninth hole of the day of the final round. And he was right on the bubble and he had driver from the back tee at Yale, 621 up into the high fairway. And then a four iron, or I think it might've even been a six iron. It was downwind from the, from probably 240. And he hit the green in two, which is, I think John Daly was the last to do it in 1991 wow. in, a in a, in a real tournament. So that's a, that that's was, that's such yeah. a huge par five, too. That's <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. It's not a two-shot hole. It's it's not a two-shot hole. And no, it's anyway, some... I was thrilled for him to get the attention for his college program for uh, for just some some type an act of uh, you know uh, one good act sort of being followed up with another. And so that was that was great. Yeah, good and, on. And I and I do want to shout out since uh, Luke Raboys, who who was the 
best who was the captain of the Cornell team about three four years ago uh, is 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 on the uh, is ambitiously following a pro career and he just Monday qualified for the PGA Tour the Putacana event uh, in a few weeks so congr- I just want to give him a quick shout out and congratulations and uh, for yet another Northeast College kid uh, gonna get a gonna get a crack at the show well that's that's great stuff all the way around yeah to have somebody get there. You know, the first opportunities on the on the big show, that's always special. Now, you, you talk about college golf. Let's uh, I know the the Yale men's team, you're on your way. You guys are on your way down to the Chris Schenkel Invitational in Statesboro, Georgia, Georgia Southern being the host down there. Um, and uh, your season's kind of getting going. Your season's pretty condensed, but it's it's about ready to get going. We're ready to go. By the way, I mean, so this is a big deal. We're we're thrilled to get invited by uh, Carter Collins. Uh, Notre Dame will be in the event. A bunch of tough uh, Southeast regional programs. So we're excited. Uh, tell us what the boys should be. I can't. I notable past champion Steve Scott. Tell us what you. <laughs> Tell us what you remember about the Shankle and and uh, and that win. Oh man, over half a lifetime ago, that was uh, that was crazy. Nineteen ninety nine, my senior year, uh, I just come off a couple victories. Actually, I hadn't won any college events until the spring of my senior year. I ended up winning the Gator Invitational. That was my first win, and then I won. Um, uh, I think it was. Uh, in Queens Harbor in Jacksonville, I uh, won there and then went to the Chris Schenkel right after that. And uh, I, I won in a playoff. We had a lot of great players there. I remember, uh, you know, guy of the Clemson team was there. They had like Jonathan Bird, Lucas Glover, uh, end up beating a guy from Georgia. And uh, I stuffed one in on a playoff hole about a foot with a little gallery around and that was, that was pretty special and, and got the win on the first playoff hole there. But uh, yeah, yeah. Statesboro Georgia was, was good to me for sure. It's uh, you know, it's an old school golf course, but uh, it's certainly, certainly a lot of fun. And uh, hold up, hold up. You won three college tournaments in a row, like in the course of like three or four weeks, three, three out of four. I did. Yeah. I, I, I didn't do much until then, but I guess my game was, it's always been hot and cold and it was, it was pretty hot then, but uh yeah, whatever. What, did, what, <laughs> what, what were you feeling? Tell me, what was what was what was it? What was it that suddenly was clicking for you? This is to me. This is the thing that golfers cutting their teeth on the sort of climbing the scale ladder want to know. Well, it's a little about what you're going to hear from Karen Stupples here in a moment on our Silver Club podcast this week. It, it was really more about the process for me, and you 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 kind of have to take the the results out of it. My goal that whole entire week in Statesboro was to never short side myself into an approach. So what that means is just don't miss it on the side. Don't miss the green on the side where the hole is located. So I have a, you know, not only a few yards to chip with, make sure if I miss the green, I got plenty of green to work with. So out of 54 holes, I only short sided myself three times. So 51 out of 54 holes, I accomplished my goal. And really that led me to the victory because I just stayed in that process and that mindset on every shot and made sure that I always gave myself room. And, you know, I hit a few good shots, obviously, but and a few good putts, but I never put myself in too much of a bother where I couldn't score. And that was the biggest thing for me that week. And it turned out to be a victory. And, and so it was really about the process for me. 
So when you're playing really well like that and it's clicking, you're are you have you are you thinking less and less about the mechanics of your swing at this point? I mean, are you are you your your primary focus is is the leave at this point? Absolutely. It's all it's all strategy based, right? I mean, look, you go up and down the range at any college event, any PGA Tour event, any corn fair, whatever the case may be, all these guys and gals, they have great golf swings. But what separates the players is is all about what kind of strategy are they employing on that course this week? Because the courses change every week, right? I mean, it's not like a tennis court or basketball court where it has the same dimensions. You're playing golf on an ever-changing property, and it changes from day to day, even the same golf course. So your strategy always has to evolve. And if your strategy doesn't evolve, and if you're not constantly thinking about strategy, then you're doing yourself a disservice. And so, you know, everybody's got a good golf swing. Everybody can make putts, yada, yada. But a lot of the times the people who play better are the people who are employing a a strategy-based uh, a, a goal or a process-based goal as opposed to, man, my, you know, I've got to get my golf swing here or I've got to, you know, I've got to shoot this number or uh, there, there's sometimes there's certain thoughts that work. And, and fortunately I just had a thought that week and I've used similar, similar thoughts uh, in, you know, from that point until now to help me play well. And I think a lot of times people get wrapped up in golf swing instead of playing golf. And that's uh uh, maybe an old cliche, but it it works. <laughs> no, I agree. I definitely agree with that. I feel like the the time to iron out any kind of wrinkles in the swing, you do that in the off season. You do that throughout the week, maybe. But when it gets, you have to leave those things behind as you as you as you head to the tournament, the practice round. From then on, on practice round onward, it has to be entirely golf course based and just in, instinct. Trust your instincts. Take. Take what you're playing with. I mean, uh, be be prepared to adapt. Uh, I agree. The thing I always love about working with the team during the tournament weekend is the kids. You play the practice round, and it's a cold, windy day, and and then the next day it's dry and sunny, and there's and, and the holes play differently, and and whatever strategy you may have had or or strategy to a certain pin, the hole plays differently, and and I do think there is a currency to the players and the teams that are able to quickly adjust and adapt and and while also sticking to their game plan but those two things don't always those things sort of compete at times with one another well that's 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 great stuff and yeah you know somebody else who adapted really well is our next guest karen stupples you're gonna really enjoy this pod she's got a lot of great insight and a lot of great inspirational stories really to uh to bring to bear so let's enjoy karen Okay, but before we get to our podcast guest this week, I just wanted to quickly tell you about the Silver Club Golfing Society. We've got our second year coming up starting next week. We're going to be at the Country Club of Orlando for our first major that we call the Orange Cup. We'll also have some one-day events, April 1st at Trinity Forest in Dallas, May 4th in Atlanta. We'll also be going to Oak Hill at the end of June. We'll be in Chicago also at the end of June. Check out our website, silverclubgs.com. Take a look at all of the great venues we get to play, all these architecturally significant courses all around the country that you've seen on TV, in print, on social media. Imagine playing these courses and hitting shots that matter on some of these great venues that you've seen over the years. 
Our membership is constantly growing. I'm constantly talking to people all across the country. We have members from California to New York and all the parts in between. Take a look at what we're doing on social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook as well. And don't forget to subscribe to our ever-growing Silver Club podcast today and listen to all of the podcasts in our library. We've had some awesome guests in the past like Jason Gore, some of the teaching minds like Boyd Summerhays, and other characters in the game like Vinnie Giles. Take a look through our whole library. You're not going to want to miss a single episode. Hop on there, subscribe today, and we thank you for doing that. Also have to tout one of our sponsors this week who's really helped us along the way. It's Turtleson. You can check them out on turtleson.com. They have some wonderful apparel. Their product line expanded to encompass performance, travel, lifestyle goods, everything in between. They're dedicated to the all-season kind of guy to help them transition effortlessly from the office to the clubhouse, from the boardroom to the barroom, or from the tarmac to the train station. All of their goods seamlessly evolve between seasons, locations, and purpose. Thanks to the Turtleson Company for helping us out along the way as we keep growing this Silver Club Golfing Society. All right, let's get to our podcast guest this week in Karen Stupples. Just an inspiring story you're not going to want to miss. Enjoy. All right. It is a monumental day here on the Silver Club Podcast. We have our very first major champion in Karen Stupples on the pod today. Welcome, Karen. Hey, good morning. This is fantastic. And what a build up. Thank you. Well, we've got lots to get to. You've had a, uh, a an amazing career that just keeps on going. And, you know, we've got Karen, the player. We've got Karen, the broadcaster. We've also got Karen, the parent. You're a parent uh, mm. now for uh, the last uh, 13 years or so. And let's kind of kick off. We had a chance to work together recently at, for PJ Tour Live out at Pebble Beach during the AT&T National Pro-Am on their Launchpad channel. And we had the opportunity to analyze a lot of swings and and just get to know each other and whatnot. You know, one thing I learned about you out there is you are an extremely humble person. Well, I, I think in all fairness, I, I don't, I mean, I am who I am and um, it's, it's nice that you think that, that that's who I am and that's cool. But it's, I think when I, if I look back into my upbringing, my uh, very sort of working class family, my, my, my mother pressed blouses in a factory and my dad drove a minibus for mentally handicapped for, for a number of years. And before that, he, he directed traffic around the port of Dover. So we, we, I come from a fa- I mean, we really didn't have very much growing up. And, and I think that I have always really appreciated even just the small things when, when they would come my way, even, even if it was when I was at the golf course as a, as a young kid, I would, I would go looking for golf balls. And, and if I was to stumble across a brand new golf ball that somebody had unfortunately lost, it became my golf ball. That was a really lucky break for me. So I, I always <laughs> saw that as a, as a, as a really cool thing. And so just small things like that have always felt good to me. And I, so I like meeting people. I enjoy uh, chatting to, to folks about different things. And, and I think that that kind of rolls through into things and into who I am. And, and it becomes more about other people than, than me, I think. Well, that's, uh, it certainly comes across on the, on the TV nowadays. Now, our listeners can obviously tell you're not from Tennessee. You're, <laughs> you're not from uh, Arkansas. You're from, you yes. mentioned Dover, England. Um, and, and then you, f- you found your way over here 
in the college days and you went to you were in Arkansas and then you went to uh, Gulp, Florida State, maybe in a a Florida Gator, a little painful. But give us a quick story about you made it over here to the to the states, to the collegiate programs. Well, it was it was a really a strange story. I I was sort of stuck in that rat race of transitioning from junior golf to, to senior golf in the UK and Although I had a really good amateur career as a junior, it, making that that transition into the to the adult into the senior world was was quite a tough one. So I thought I just wanted to get out of the rat race, and one of the best opportunities for me was to go to university in America. So I am probably the most impulsive person you you could meet. So in June, uh, all the way back when I back in probably 92, something like that, I decided that I wanted to go to college in America and I wanted to go that August. So that's only like a few months to get things organized. I had never, <laughs> I had never been to America before. I had never, I mean, I mean, I'd only just traveled a little bit around Europe, but not, not extensively, only to play a few tournaments. Um, I was, you know, my parents didn't travel much on holiday either. So their lives revolved around being in the UK. So America seemed like a very, very long way away, but I was made up my mind. I was pretty determined. So I joined an agency called College Prospects of America. They, and they guided me down the right path. They said, well, you need to take an SAT. I'm like, what in the world is an SAT? I soon discovered that it was the most <laughs> hellacious exam ever. I mean, it, I'm like, I'm like, what? still is. It, yeah. yeah, it's like this is just torture. But but I took it on standby. I went to an American school based in London, and uh, I sat outside and waited for somebody to not show up. And when somebody didn't show up, I went in and took it. And luckily, I passed somehow. Got enough got enough points <laughs> on it to to get through. And uh, so then my resume got sent around to a number of of uh, schools to division one schools over here in the States. And, and basically what happened is I got so many replies because I had, you know, represented England. I had a handicap of, I think I was like plus three or plus four at the time. I, you know, I had all this, these amateur tournament records that were pretty good and uh, everybody wanted me to start the following year, but I was so impatient. I'm like, no, I need to start in August. So Arkansas state, <laughs> a first year program contacted me and said, Hey, we have a scholarship for you. I'm like, I'm in. And so that was that. So <laughs> literally my parents put me on a plane that August and sent me through Atlanta, the biggest airport in the world, to Memphis where I was where I was greeted there and driven to my dorm room in at Arkansas State. And wow. and I had my golf clubs in a suitcase and I had nothing else. I slept on a bare mattress that day. Then my roommate came the following day. She was she um was also on the golf team and she looked at me, she said, you don't have anything, do you? I said, no. She said, we need to go to Walmart. I'm like, okay, what's Walmart? She said, oh, you'll see. And so that, and that, that was it. That's how I ended up over here. Yeah, Walmart. I imagine being in Arkansas, that's the home of uh, Walmart. Uh, you, you probably yeah, you hit a few Walmarts in your time there. And then you yep. you, you moved over to Tallahassee to Florida did. State after it did, uh, did pretty well there, moved on, and, and you played so well. You won actually one of the collegiate events you won was in Gainesville at the, the Lady Gator event in 1995. And, and then your play led you to a couple Curtis Cup teams. Yep. You talk about representing the your country and the GB&I squad, really, you know, with a few countries kind of involved. Uh, talk about how your play kept increasing and improving over here and, and then how the Curtis Cup was maybe a good launching point for your professional career. 
Well, I mean, it's always been a huge driving factor for me is, is my own self-improvement with, with, the, with the golf game. Yes, I had goals of, of playing for, for Britain and I had goals of, of, you know, playing professionally, but I really didn't know how that was going to come to fruition. I just knew that I just wanted to improve personally. And what I realized, quickly realized when I came out to America was that my game had been built on a Lynx golf course. Uh, I grew up on a golf course right next door to Royal St. George's, which is where they're, where they're going to host the, the, the Open Championship this year. Right. So, and Lynx golf courses, there are no trees. It feels pretty wide open. Sure, there's some long grass and some pot bunkers, but it's it doesn't feel very claustrophobic. It's all very open. It's right there in front of you. You can literally move it as much as you want on that golf course you could land it short right. bump it along the ground it's a much lower kind of game i soon realized as soon as i came out to to, to play and and even you know even when i was down in in jonesboro playing for arkansas state the, the country club that we played at was jonesboro country club and i have never seen fairways so narrow with trees i mean it was tree line <laughs> And I thought, I am going to have to go on a diet just to walk down these fairways. It was so tight. I thought, <laughs> and so I, I, I got so tired of, of hitting, of, of trying to guide the ball down the fairway and still being in the trees. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to stand here and hit it as hard as I can. And at least I'm a long way down there in the trees. And all of a sudden, as soon as I started doing that, I started to hit more fairways and I started to play well. So that was the first lesson I learned was you can't guide the ball into a position you still have to stand there and hit it the next valuable lesson i learned was actually at that at the lady gator invitational um, when <laughs> i played and i played in that tournament and i'm like i can't bump and run these shots into these greens i have to learn how to play a lob shot so my coach yeah. my coach and i stood there after the first after the first practice round hit practicing these little lob shots and obviously I did well enough to, to get by and to win the tournament but it was something that I have to fight still to this day is is the tendency that I want to always play along the ground yet the, yet the, the shot to play is the lob shot and it's still one that um, I can play it's not it was never a problem for me over the course of my career but but it's not my first go-to because it's just not not what I grew up with yeah, it's funny how players have their golfing DNA, I like to say. It's it's what they're what they're born with, what their eye likes to see. For me, I was always a, a right to left type of player and I even my I looked at straight putts and I even saw them going right to left when I was younger. So it was <laughs> it's really funny. It's funny how we develop this golf DNA and and as you kept on going getting to the tour and you the, the story that you shared with me out at Pebble Beach I think mm -hmm. and I think it really lends itself to uh the perspective that you have and and the humble nature that you do come from you know you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth you got everything that you that you got out of golf everything and mm -hmm. more really than yeah. you put into it um and and I think about a lot of these these up and comers who are you know, they, they have the opportunities to play at some of these the, the greatest clubs ever and, and have the opportunities for uh, brand new three thousand dollar sets mm -hmm. of golf clubs. Well, I mean, I mean you, we, you, we've already talked a little briefly about my, my family and my parents and, you know, the, the jobs that they had. And quickly, as soon as I, I got to about 11 or so, I asked for pocket money from my father. And he said, well, Karen, you don't get anywhere in life without working for it. So you can either help your mother with the washing up every night or you can come and caddy for me. So I went and caddied for my dad and I was always swishing with a golf club. And he says, well, this looks like he might like to play golf. Would you like to have some, would you like to 
try. I said, I'd love to. He said, well, I'll get you in with some lessons. So he got me booked in with the lessons. And he said, okay, this works great. He said, it was one pound. For one pound, I got to hit balls on the driving range, get taught by the, by the club pro, and got a candy bar and a can of soda afterwards. It was fantastic. <laughs> Talk about hooking me, hook, line, and sinker with a candy bar and a can of soda. So after my first lesson, Dad said, you, right, you need to go practice. So we went to the to the practice ground, and, and we hit balls, and, and so that was that. But basically, long story short, is that I, I didn't really play on the golf course for a couple of years because we couldn't afford to buy a set of golf clubs. So every birthday and Christmas, uh, I would ask for a golf club and I would get another golf club. And then I would ask for some extra money from other family members and I would put that towards another club. And after about sort of a year and a half, two years, I actually had enough, enough clubs for half a set. That was when I went out onto the golf course and played my first round of golf. Wow! And so, yeah, but I, but not only was I, I doing that, I had paper rounds and I worked in a cafe. I used to clean dishes and clean out trash bins and all kinds of stuff. And I've always had a job. The only time I haven't, I didn't have a job was was when I was actually in college at Flor- at Florida State because mm-hmm. I, you know, had a full scholarship and wasn't allowed to. So basically, I was working trying to save money. I would go hunt for my golf balls to try and find balls to play with and I didn't have a golf club because golf glove because couldn't afford one of those but it, but but so it was just one of those things but it was good because the club that that, that I played at had free golf for juniors so we didn't have Great. to pay for my which I think is a very very worthwhile thing and if you want to grow the game that has to be a, a way forward for, for people to think about you know you have to encourage the the youngsters to get out there and and take, take the cost out of it. So that was pretty cool. And then as I, as I progressed, obviously the college thing we've talked about, but didn't really work out for me college wise, educational wise. I have ADD, I'm dyslexic. So I struggled to pass exams, but I went back to the UK to work. So I knew that my dream of playing professional golf was, was just right there in front of me, but I needed to save money to try. It's not cheap to, to go to Q school, to to try and even to try no to try and even get your tour card and I didn't have that kind of money laying around because anything any of anything spare that my parents had had gone into paying the, the leftover stuff from from college you know you still need extra money it's not just you get a full scholarship everything's paid for that's not that's not how it works so I had to work and I worked at a golf club called Etching Hill where which is just outside of Folkestone and I was doing waitressing and every every tuesday i had a regular table would come in and it was uh, people people that would play tennis but come to the golf club to eat so i would serve them because none of the other waitresses would because they were really picky about how they wanted stuff but i i didn't care I, i'm quite picky myself so i i felt <laughs> like i had a nice understanding with them sure. and um one day that the one of the guys name was keith rawling says to me Karen, he said, I keep seeing your name in the newspaper. You do really well in all these amateur golf tournaments. He said, I'm just curious why you haven't turned pro yet. And so I explained to him that I was trying to save up the money and eventually I, I would do so. And uh, he said, oh, he said, that's interesting. So I cleaned up the dishes, brought him his next course out. And he said, you know, my wife and I have been talking. He said, uh, we really think you deserve the opportunity to try uh, and play professional golf. He said, we've been really lucky. Uh, we've been successful and uh, we th- we want to give you that opportunity. I was I was completely floored. And yeah, that was, said, a, that was oh, a pretty good night, wasn't it? <laughs> it was unbelievable. He said, right. I said, come to my office tomorrow with a budget of everything you might need. I was like, wow. So I was up till three in the morning writing this 
budget out, uh, handwriting the budget out because, you know, typewriters, you know, back then and stuff I didn't have. So I'm like, okay. So I go to his office and he said, yep, this is great. He said, just, there's just one thing. And I'm like, oh no, here we go. What was, what's the one thing he said, I don't want you to have any pressure when you go to Q school with this. He said, I'm going to do this for three years because I don't expect you to have to think this is your one time, one shot at this. And so that was it. So off I went to Q school and I got my tour card first time round. And thanks to Keith Rawlings, I've had a very successful career and here I am now. Who knows where I would have been without Keith? I have no, I honestly don't know if I would have ever made it to, to the golf tour if, if Keith had not given me that opportunity. That's, uh, that's an unbelievable story. And, uh, it's, it's amazing, right? It's, it's, it just takes, you know, one person to change your life. And that's, uh, that's just a, uh, that's a fantastic story. And yeah, kudos to him for, uh, for mm. seeing that in you. And, and he definitely saw something in you that he, that he liked and, Wow. Uh, and and what a career it's been. You really started in, in 99 and you improved each and every year, went from 130th to 119th to 89th to 46th to 35th to 6th on the money list in 2004, which was really your breakout year. Talk about that year. And uh, 2004 probably has to stick in your mind probably more than more than any, right? You had two victories on the LPGA Tour, set a, a record yep. at the Welch's Fries Championship before you end up winning the Weedabix Women's British Open. And yep. just just talk about, I mean, you played pretty, <laughs> an unbelievable tournament. Uh, that, first, that first win that you had, 63, 66, 66, 63. For all of our listeners out there who want to get better with their games, how do you maintain such consistency and and such dominant play over the course of four days like that i i think to be honest with you i was i was in a good place with my game and and i think more than anything else i was really enjoying how i was hitting the golf ball there was a just a a a a pleasure that I was getting from the feel of, of the shots that I was playing because every, because most of them were, were correlating to the mental visualization that I had for that shot. And it was a it's very satisfying feeling and, and a, a feeling of really not being able to put a foot wrong. Like I just didn't ever feel myself hitting a poor shot. I could, I just couldn't feel it within me. And it was just the weirdest thing. I'm like, this is great. I love this. And, and just being in that moment of, of the, of, and it's very much, I guess, that one shot at a time mentality without even trying to be in that one shot at a time mentality because the, the joy of, of hitting a pure golf shot uh, you know, supersedes the number on a scorecard or what it actually means in, in the big picture of taking home the trophy. And, mm-hmm. and I think that was, that was what was enabling me to, to, to not think about the overall outcome was that I was just loving each individual moment on its own merit. And I had, I had no idea that that really was what I was doing. I just knew that that was what I just, that's what happened. Interesting. You could just say that you're, you were completely enamored and wrapped up in the process of it, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I think that's the goal that everybody wants to do. Like you want to be in that moment and you want to be in that, but it, but making yourself do it is, is virtually impossible. And I think, think that people like Tiger Woods or Annika Sorenstam, they obviously found that much more often than, than somebody like myself who, who found it a few times, but when you did, it was, it was pretty special, but it, it's just, uh, when, when people ask me about it and they ask me about the round of golf that I played or, 
or what, you know, what do I remember about playing from it? I remember that feeling, you know, of how excited I was at the strike of the shots, but I don't remember the individual shots or the individual stuff unless I'd seen it on a replay from TV, from TV coverage. I so was just in that moment and uh, every, I was oblivious to everything else that was around me. And um, I have no, I mean, yeah, I guess I that's what I it takes. That's what it takes out there, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could replicate it. And I, I think sometimes when you see people um, walking walking around golf courses and they and they and they they've just got that stare in their eyes that they're just so focused, and it's like, oh, I, that must have been what I look like because <laughs> that, that's exactly what it must be. It's it's strange because I wish I could. I wish I could describe it better because I think if I had a better a better way to describe it, I think it would be easier to replicate. Yeah, some some players have called it maybe just blacking out almost, almost like you you your process you've gone through this routine and the process so many times in a row that you just get into this kind of trance like state and it's almost like you're hypnotized out there and and yeah. uh, and you're just you're you're doing what you've trained yourself to do. I think that's I think that's probably exactly what it was. But I, I think for me, as well, if I think back to Tucson in that in the final round, I started with a bogey. I I think I, I fatted a chip my second shot. It was like just a little fifty-two degree wedge, just fatted it. Hit a really good drive, but fatted it. And my caddy said to me, "You know, I've seen some really good rounds of golf start with a bogey, so you're fine." And then I birded <laughs> the next, and I was off and running. So I think this goes to show you that that no matter what th- things can turn out the way they should be well later that year you won the the british the women's british open and maybe nobody in the history of golf major championship or otherwise has started a final round when you needed to do it has started a final round any better than you talk about those for the first <laughs> two holes that you had i mean it's just something it's dreamlike isn't it oh it's it's crazy i i, I it really started for me the, the night before because I was talking talking with uh, my caddy and I said, look, I said, I'm one shot back. I, I need to get off to a fast start because it's two par fives at Sunningdale. And uh, so I knew that for the most part, the people in the lead were, were going to birdie those two. I knew that I needed to make at least one eagle on those one of those first two holes to to close that gap to then at least draw even. And then I thought it's it's game on from that point on. And I liked my chances. I'm a, I, I like to be a competitor. I like to to get out there and play. And so I thought this if I can get off to that fast start, it'd be ideal. So we were looking at it and you know, Bobby was like, Yeah, I think think you'll be fine. We'll we'll figure it out. So I get on the first tee and I guess I was a little nervous, but I don't really register as being really and outrageously nervous, but I somehow managed to Pamela drive down there to, and only have a five iron into the first green. Longest drive I'd hit by probably 20 yards on that hole all week. Wow. And I'm like, okay, this works. A little five iron in it. So I hit the green and I had about a 15 footer for eagle and I made it. And I'm like, okay, good. There's my eagle. There's that one. Okay, now I've got to at least birdie this next hole. So the next hole I went and I uh, hit a good drive. Um, got it into, it was roughly about 220 to the hole. Uh, but it was a blind second shot, so you couldn't see the green. You could see the flag, but you couldn't see the green because it kind of fell away. So I stood over it with another five iron in my hand, and I've hit this, knowing that I had to land it short of the green and let it trundle on a bit. So I hit it, and I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good line. 
in fact <laughs> i kind of like that line okay let's just hope hope the distance is good let's hope so i'm standing there i'm posing a little bit and and then the the crowd starts clapping and it gets louder and louder and then they, the crowd just goes crazy they just go nuts and i'm like did it go in and then the tv commentator who was walking with my group working for the bbc maureen madill she said yep it's in and so that was it <laughs> so eagle albatross start five under par through two holes yeah and, was- and you end up winning the winning that championship by five so that was really yep. the 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 determining factors right there and just uh that's uh, that's that's outrageous. That uh, maybe that maybe yeah. never duplicated in the history of golf ever again. So uh, <laughs> spectacular. That's will always will always be something that carries with you. Well, I really pinch myself because I I I don't know if if you know it's, some things are just meant to be, and I I think that I, I can put this down to being one of those things that uh, for whatever reason I was supposed to win that week and. I'm very glad that it happened because it's really put me on the path to what I do now, which is talking about golf, which is, which I think is probably a bigger passion for me than actually, than actually having played it. And I was pretty passionate about playing it, but I, I really enjoy what I do now. Well, let's, let's get into the broadcasting a little bit. We'll make a perfect segue into that. Talking, you, you, you're out there. We obviously mentioned, you know, PGA Tour Live, you're on Golf Channel. You've kind of been everywhere. You worked for BBC uh, how much do you enjoy the broadcasting side now outside of the playing aspect? I, I, I love it. I love it because it, to me, it's all problem solving and, and I love to solve problems. I mean, I think that's probably the, the biggest thing. Like even when I play golf, it was all, okay, how, what, I, I have to fix a problem. I have to get better at this. So I have to do this. And it's the same when I watch golf too. When I watch other people, it's all about, okay, what did they do? Right. What did they do wrong? You know, the how and the why, how did that happen? Why did it happen? And, you know, looking through the statistics and, you know, I've, I've, I've come, I've been very lucky to, to work for, for the PGA tour live um, broadcast because I get to dive deep into some statistics that aren't readily available in women's golf. So I can dive into those statistics and formulate an opinion on somebody's game just to see what they're doing. And then, and then you can extrapolate that and and use it, you know, to things that they have said, you know, in, in conferences. And it's like putting all the little pieces of the puzzle together. And that to me, I find really fascinating. Like I, I was looking at Rory McIlroy the other day and, and Rory, you know, he said that he wants to gain consistency. So I'm like, okay, I need to look into Rory McIlroy to see how he's gained consistency. Where in his game is he looking more consistent so then when you look through it you think oh you know, obviously putting blah 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 that but that's the same old same old there has to be other places right and it's in his and it's in how, how close he hits it to the hole from 125 to 175 which is right there where most of his approach shots come from i mean he's gained he's he's got so much closer to the hole from where he was three years ago so it's just these little things that i love to piece them put together just i, I look for uh, clues into in in the you know in the in their press conferences and, and how sure. they talk what they say and then I and I look for evidence it's almost like like detective work I suppose in many ways and I I find that fascinating because it changes from day to day outside of the statistical differences that you are able to find from the PGA Tour as opposed to the LPGA Tour is there any other big differences that you have in covering the men and the women and you know do the approach the telecast any differently um they do actually because of the like the this you know the lack of statistics there's a lot more sort of uh 
telling of stories, you know, surrounding the, the, the players. But I also feel that uh, a good base of knowledge about about the women players is is crucial because if if you don't uh, watch them closely or, or watch them hit balls on the range or have had the opportunity to walk around the golf course with with a number of them, you you really can't have an appreciation for how good they are and how good they play because in the big picture of things, you know, you look at how many greens they hit, you look at how many fairways. Okay. That doesn't give you how close they hit it to the hole or anything like that. So I, I really feel like it's, you know, it's my job is to try and, and put into words just how good it is. Um, or, or, and the flip side of it, it, it might not be very good too. And, and when you're, when you talk about the differences between men and women's game, and I, and I think that there are a number of women players now that hit the ball miles. I mean, if you look at Maria Fassi, her average, driving distance this year is something like 292 yards. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's massive. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's scary good. And I, and I think there is a trend now for, for players coming out of college, coming into the women's game that are much longer off the tee. And I think you're going to see a progression in, in that department too. But, but I do, I do believe that when you talk about, when you, when you look at them, Yes, they hit a lot more fairways. Yes, they hit a lot more greens. Putting is is pretty good. I, I think the main difference for me is is that because the because of the style of play that the men have, you know, they they are very aggressive. They they miss more fairways. Therefore, they have to be a little bit tighter with their short games. Like in terms of being short sided, like they they play some of the most ridiculous golf, ridiculous golf shots I've ever seen <laughs> from from a, just around the green, short sided themselves. I mean, even hearing hearing how how they talk about the chip shots. You know, Tiger Woods was was prime example. He talked about hooking a chip or slicing a chip mm-hmm. just to get it to even out some of the slopes on the greens. Yep. I'm not so sh- I'm not so sure that it, that the women's game is is that same way because it doesn't need to be because they hit more fairways. They you know they they hit a lot of greens. They're not in horrible positions that they have to they have to necessarily play those shots. But I am constantly amazed at how good these guys are uh, around the greens. It just blows me away. And in the same way, I'm constantly amazed at how straight and long the women are off the tee these days. It's uh, so, so it's compare and contrast. Yes, they play the same game, but they don't play the same game. It's, it's, um, it's very different styles. Women, women have to employ so much more strategy. And I think that, that when you're when you're covering women's golf, I think that the need to talk about strategy is is much greater. You ha- you really do have to think about through lines and carry distances and things like that. And and what are the benefits of say for Alexi Thompson being able to go in with an iron iron over over one of the other players that didn't hit the ball quite as far, having to go in with a five iron. True. So it's there are all different uh, manner of things that you can find to talk about, but. I would love to see, love to see one day um, that the women have something like shot, like a shot link system for them, because it would really help everybody to get a really good understanding of just how good they are. No doubt, no doubt. Now, all the things, all the events that you've covered as a broadcaster, you've obviously learned a, a heck of a lot about the game from a different perspective than you did as a player. Is there something that you, Karen Stupples, as the broadcaster, wish you could have said to Karen, the tour player? <laughs> oh yes, I'm sure that you you know this that you know this to be the case too from, from your experience. It's like. Um, I was incredibly hard on myself and every single bad shot lived with me far too long. 
But what I needed to know was that even the very best players in the world hit really crappy shots at times. It's not all about hitting perfect shots. It's not all about trying to perfect a golf swing. It's about getting the golf ball in the hole. I spent hours pouring over my golf swing on slow motion video, trying to make sure I was in, in perfect plane, in perfect positions. And ultimately, it really doesn't matter. It's about how you how you get the club back to impact and how you get the ball started off ultimately is, is, is what, what the biggest thing is. It's uh, And I worried so much about it and I, I didn't need to. I needed to think about scoring and scoring alone and that was it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I think your 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 puppy thinks so too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what's a, what's your such a what's your puppy's name? Her name is Zoe, and I think I think uh, I know she's like. Listen, you need to you need to stop talking and pay some attention to me. Uh, Zoe, we'll be. Well, I, I'm going to let you go to Zoe here just in a couple more moments. I got a couple more questions I want to get to, and uh, we'll let you go and take care of Zoe, but. Talk a little about recently Mickey Wright, one of the most prolific, maybe second most prolific LPGA Tour winner, 82 times a winner, 13 majors. Did you ever had a chance to meet her over time? And and if so, what kind of impact did she have on you? Uh, the, the, one of the, the biggest, you know, the sad things is, is that I really didn't have that opportunity to meet her. But having recently, obviously, with, with her passing, and unfortunately, only because of her passing, it's really made me pay attention to her as, as with her swing, and and how she, and how she played golf, and 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 you know it, the question was asked of me uh, by another writer, by Steve Eubanks. You know, he's like, what, you know, what is it about her swing that makes everybody say that she's she she had the best swing, male or female? And so I thought long and hard about it, and I and I did my usual deep dive into swings and looking at it, and it's like it's because it has elements of all the greatest players within it. You know, there's elements of a, of Nicholas with, with the knee with, with the left knee kick in. There's elements of of Hogan. There's elements of Bobby Jones. There's elements of of even if you look to Matthew Wolf. You know, he's he's you know the same kind of sort of left the, the way her left knee. Her left foot moved a little bit out as it's as it's replanting right. back on the on the floor has sort of elements of that modern that modern power swing to it, and I think that that's that's really what has been so fascinating when you, when you look at her game and her swing is that it, you're you're combining elements of old school old school genius with new school genius. Yeah, that's that's a that's an exquisite way to describe Mickey Wright for sure. One of the most fluid, gorgeous swings you could ever see, and certainly you could learn learn a lot. And and yeah, having the having that kind of piece together with all of those great players that you mentioned, uh, yeah, certainly very fitting there. You, will you be working the the Founders Cup, uh, the LPGA Founders Cup coming up out in in Phoenix in the next couple of weeks? I will be. Uh, I've been very lucky to every year that it's been it's been on what on both on the course as a player and now off the course as a broadcaster. So, I was in that first group of players when Mike Kwan came to the tour and said, "I have this great idea for a tournament celebrating the founders." He said, "But I want you all to play for free," and we're like, "Okay, we're in," and and we did it because it was a celebration to raise funds for for girls golf. And I think it really puts the LPGA on the map with regards what we were doing to help grow the game right from the start. Um, but but yes, it, it, and I think it's been a huge 
huge for the tour in general because it's very easy to forget the struggles of getting the tour off the ground, you know, of, of the players that really made sacrifices to to have a professional women's golf league then. And and I think to meet the founders, you know, when you think about your Shirley Sporks and your Marion Smith, who unfortunately passed away as well, but, it, you know, you, you get to meet the people that started it all off and you have a huge appreciation for what they did. And I really feel that, what Mike has done with that has has given a gift to to the younger players now that are just coming out and say, look, this is where it all started. This is why we're different. And this this is what's going to help us to become the, the organization of the future of, of where we can go. Is you have to embrace what these women did. And you have to have an appreciation for what they sacrificed to get where we are. And um, And I think it was a huge thing that he did. Uh, in giving that to the LPGA and to the players, both past and present, and I think think that the founders themselves, the ones that that that, that have been able to go, I feel appreciated for, for what they did, and uh, that's a very special thing. Yeah, Mike Wan has had a tremendous influence on that tour, hasn't he? I mean, you know, you you, you alluded to it a little bit, but but certainly he has been such a a catalyst for not only the Founders Cup, but for for so many great opportunities for the women, right? Oh, yes. I mean, he, he thinks outside the box. He's a great communicator. Um, people warm to him. He's a very genuine, genuine, very genuine guy. And I think that he's he works so hard and I think people believe in him. And I think that if you if people can believe in the person who's leading the tour, I think think you you're going to do very well. And he sets himself up with with good people around him too. The the, the board of directors he has uh, a very cool group of people that all bring different ideas to the table. And, uh, and I think that it's uh, he works really well with everybody. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. What a what a great product he's put on in the last several years and and more and and the. Uh, the the increasing amount of of tournaments that the players have played for and uh it's uh, it's been tremendous you know it, the 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 korean domination really i i'm not going to let you go without talking about kind of the, the the balance or maybe imbalance uh of of players on the lpga tour uh the korean domination really has uh you know has really taken a stranglehold on the LPGA Tour game. Well, what's your take? And you having you you live in Orlando now, and you've lived over here in the states for for quite a while since the college days. How, how what's your take on how the American players can get better, or how can we maybe develop a a system over here to to get more Americans into the fray and and the professional level? Well, I I think. Uh, from, from an individual perspective, uh, players, I, I think when I when I watch Korean players practice and play, there is a discipline to everything that they do. Uh, and, and I think that it primarily shows up in tournament play and there's a discipline to how they play golf in that they're very uh, target disciplined. Like they'll pick a target, they'll stick to it. It, it won't be because... Um, they, you know, they've just made a bogey on the last hole that they they be play try and make it up by playing more aggressive, and then they have another bogey. No, they're going to stick to their game plan. They they have a target that they want to hit, and they're going to stick to it regardless of what's going on around them. Very very disciplined, and I think that's that's the biggest key in in, in what you see, and in, in that, that's a cultural thing sometimes as much as anything. And sometimes it can just be about training training your mind to to behave and act in a certain way to kind of single mindedly 
uh, just act on that one shot, that one time in that one moment. But if you talk about the, the overall, what they do really well in Korea, it's it's off the charts in how they develop their, their, their young golfers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there are three different there are three different levels of women golf of, of female golf tour over there. Um, three different stages which they go through, wow. uh, developmental tour wise before. They, they have a chance to maybe go to the LPGA. You know, the third level being the KLPGA, which is highly competitive. Um, and, and you know, you see a number of players that primarily only play on that tour still feature in the in the top 30 of the world ranking. So it, it's a very, very com- competitive tour. Have a level below that, level below that. Um, they, they, they're very competitive with their junior golf too, just to play on the Korean junior team. They have series of qualifying tournaments and it's just qualifying competing against each other all the time mm. it's it's creating it's creating uh, a survival of the fittest really you know it's like from a very young age if you can't compete and and you're not a winner you're not going to make it so what you're seeing what you're seeing is the very best developing and honing skills of competition right from the youngest of ages and what i see here you know it's obviously there's a lot of funding put into their put into their the junior golf too, you know, the, the Korean junior team, they get to travel around the world. They get to go play in, in professional tournaments as amateurs. And it's, you know, that's funded by, by the Korean golf federation. So it's, it's, uh, I think that, you know, we're missing out by, by not funding some of the amateurs, by not helping some of the very talented, gifted players over here, uh, be able to train the way they need to train, be able to travel where they need to travel because of maybe family constraints like the ones I had when I was growing up. My parents couldn't yeah, afford to, for me to do that. A, that. Therefore, I didn't get to do it. That's a great point. I mean, you know, from from you know, you being a, a, from England, who, who do you think maybe is the next English player who's going to make their mark on the LPGA Tour? Oh, it's it. There are a number of of players now, and and they're all quite different. Um, you've got Bronte Law, who is uh, just a feisty, feisty competitor. I mean, she is. Um, she's she's your Kevin Kisner of of <laughs> women's British okay. golf, the Ian Poulter or Ian Poulter. I mean, she's just a feisty competitor yeah. and very talented, and she's she's prepared to do whatever it takes to win. You've got Georgia Hall, who who has already got a British Open to, on her resume. Um, very consistent player. Um, maybe not quite as physically gifted as, say, Charlie Hull, who is, is another English player, um, who hits the ball a long way, just very physically gifted, um, has won, won the CME Globe. So she's won a couple of big events, but hasn't quite been able to do it on a consistent basis. So you're really seeing some players that, that, that come out, they win, but haven't been able to produce it consi- consistently. Um, I think that with English golf, uh, they join the, the English women's golf, join the English men's golf union, I want to say probably seven years ago now. Right. And I think that was one of the biggest moves that they, they've done. But again, they've got more funding. They're able to train together. They're able to learn from what the guys do and vice versa. And I really feel like it's, it's benefited. And so you're starting to see a number of good women golfers come out. There are a couple of players from England that, that haven't quite one yet, but certainly have all the potential in the world to do so. That would be Melissa Reed and Jody Ewart Shadoff. Both of those two have the potential any week that they tee it up to go ahead and win. It's just sometimes um, they lack a little belief in themselves. And being typically British, there is a a general feeling of um, 
you can't be don't don't show that you're too confident don't look too cocky just kind of be calm and cool and you know kind of put yourself down a little bit because that's what everybody expects you to be like in the UK hmm. and so if, if you need to overcome a little bit of that and I think you know Bronte Law certainly has and and, and we'll see her continue to do well. Interesting the cultural differences there for sure now yeah for sure the hmm. um um yeah, I guess. I guess finally, um, you know, you're you're you mentioned really just a second ago combining on the English side, combining the women's and the men's uh, golf union over there. Do you see a point in the near future, maybe, where the LPGA tour and the PGA tour combine their forces to kind of rehold an event like they used to back at the old J.C. Penney Classic? Uh, Do you know, I I think there is a big desire to see that happen. Um, I, I really feel like that the media, I, I feel like everybody who is a golf fan wants to see that very badly. It happens a little bit over in um, the European tour now. I mean, they play in, in the at the same time on maybe two different courses at one venue, right? Yep, yep. And, 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 you, and I think that there is just a desire desire for that too. And I actually think that they want more of a, of a, of a mixed event as well, where you have a, a team format, man-woman pairing. I think in general that, that would be – that would be something that would be very, very beneficial. And, and even just, uh, as you say, more of the Vic Open, that, that kind of thing. But my, my dream in, in an ideal world would be to have, uh, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, the USDA, when they played at Pinehurst, they had the men and the women play the same Correct. course. Uh, and what they did was, which was very clever, was that they the, the guys played first and they, they got all the numbers for what clubs that the players were hitting. I think they paid the caddies for that information. So here, you know, here's whatever the money is. Tell us what clubs that your player hit into all these greens. So they figured that all out and they applied that to, to the women. So that say, say the first hole, the average club hit into the green for the guys was at nine on. They would make the women, the average club hit into the green, would also be a nine iron. Right. So, so you were able to compare the, the two types of games in a very similar way in terms of score wise and everything else because they were playing the same clubs into the green. My dream, uh, if I was, uh, if if I had my, if I was commissioner of all golf everywhere in the world, it would be to have a, a tournament where men and women would play, and they were playing the same tournament. They would have one purse, one trophy. Everybody plays, um, except obviously you set it up with two different sets of tees so that they're both going into the greens with the same clubs. That would be exciting. And then, and then, and then, and then, you, then you'd be able to see. Then you'd see where, where things would really shake out. Zoe's agreeing with me. Zoe too. loves that idea. It. Zoe absolutely <laughs> loves that idea. Well, yeah. well look, I'm, yeah. I'm going to let you go and, and, and take care of Zoe. I really appreciate all of your time. <laughs> Karen Stubbles, the first major champion who's on our Silver Club podcast. Uh, where can our listeners out there see you uh, more? Obviously, you're going to be at the Founders Cup, like we just mentioned, on Golf Channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, where can we find you on the social media world? I am at, uh, at K Stubbles on Twitter and Stubbles K on Insta. So any of those two places, you'll find me. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're... Your followers will will go up tenfold after being on our podcast here, and I. Uh, <laughs> but I thank you, uh, and we thank you so much for your time and your insight into the women's game and the men's game and uh, just the game in general. What a what a story that you've had and uh, continue to write. So thank you so much for your time. 
No, I say my, my pleasure. I've, I've loved it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much to Karen Stupples for joining us on this Silver Club podcast today. Just a truly remarkable story coming from the meager upbringings that she did all the way to major championship stardom. Congratulations on such a great career and what lies in the future for you, Karen. And thank you, all of our Silver Club podcast listeners out there. Remember to subscribe and download all of our episodes in our series. We've got a lot of great ones coming up in the pipeline as well. So until next time, everybody, remember to respect, honor, and cherish this great game of golf that we all love.